class. This is your professor, Debbie, and welcome to True Crime University. How's everybody today? Um, couple news items before we start. I made uh, some audio changes, and my mom told me that last episode, which was, oh, the heist of the art museum, she said it sounded a lot better. So hopefully this one will sound better too. Before we get into today's lesson, wanted to give you a little sneak peek at what I have planned for October. October, of course, is Halloween, Halloween month, and I would have liked to do some spooky things, but a lot of people have said that they don't like that kind of stuff. They'd rather me stick to crime, and my Haunted Amusement Park episodes, which I really had a blast doing, were unfortunately like some of the lowest downloaded episodes. So what I'm going to do is there's four Thursdays in October. Thursday's the day that the show comes out. So I'm going to have each day, each Thursday will be a crime. And I picked four crimes that are, have some kind of like a spooky element or something to do with Halloween somehow. And then I'm going to make a few shorter episodes, like, uh, I don't know, maybe 20 minutes, half an hour, and put them at various places in October. And one of them I'm going to do, you can actually participate in if you want. I'm going to name, count down my top 10 horror movies of all time, and just talk about each one a little bit. And if you want, you can email me your top 10 horror movies, and I'll read them along with mine. And my Email is pugmumof1 at gmail.com. So that'd be kind of fun. And I had a couple other like haunted or spooky topics to talk about that I would make just short episodes that you could either take them or leave them. And I'm looking over at Leo, my guinea pig, and uh, <laughs> he's, I don't have my glasses on. So he's he's kind of blurry from where I am. But he's real cute. I don't know if you've ever seen any pictures of him. His head, like the first third of him is black. And he has sort of an orangish stripe in the middle. And his ass is black. And from here, you can't tell which end is which. Unless one of the ends goes to the food bowl and starts eating. And then I know that that's his head. Just a little distraction. This is a very important case. I think I mentioned that before. It's going to be a few parts. And the reason it's so important, I use it for my dissertation. So I'm going to be using that as a source. It's heavy on psychology and sociology. And because it's a couple, we're going to get into the theories behind how two people can get together and commit such atrocious acts. And as far as um, references go, you know, if you're asking yourself, where did she get this information from? It's my own dissertation. So the theories are mine. And I'll tell you when we get into those theories about where I got them from and why I think this and how... I use my research to explain the behavior of these people. And I have heard the case. I mean, it's not a real popular one. It happened in 1980. You may have heard of it. You may. I know other podcasts have done it, other people on YouTube. And they mainly 
all say, wow, I just don't understand how these two people could have found each other or how Carol, who we'll see is the uh, the submissive of the pair. And we're going to learn that in any kind of duo or group, even if you're not committing a crime, even if you're just friends, you're a couple, whatever, there's always a dominant personality and a submissive personality. Carol Bundy was definitely the submissive personality in this duo. And people wonder how could this meek, submissive woman who, like, supposedly wouldn't say boo, become a killer or, or complicit in killings. And I'm going to explain that to you. So that's a little bit of a twist on, uh, you know, my rule. I don't talk about a topic unless I have something new to add and that's, since I'm gonna, well, I guess you can believe it or not, I'll just tell you what my theories are. That's what I have new to add to what's already been written and talked about about these two. And of course, um, if you don't know by the show notes, we're going to talk about Douglas Clark and Carol Bundy, also known as the Sunset Strip Killers or the Sunset Strip Slayers. And there are some trigger warnings I want to warn you about. These two were into some pretty disgusting shit. We're going to have necrophilia, dismembering, rape, murder, of course, pedophilia, um, all kinds of philias, all sorts of disgusting foul behavior. So definitely not a family-friendly episode. I just want to warn everybody right now. And of course, here's my disclaimer. This podcast is for educational purposes only. I don't intend to glorify crime or criminals. All the information I get is from public sources. Any audio clips are from news, which is also public. I have a BA in psychology and a PhD in criminal justice. I'm not a mental health professional. I can't diagnose anybody. So if and when I discuss somebody's psychology, it's just my speculation. And finally, there is a pug, Nathan, who lives here and may occasionally give his unsolicited comments, and sometimes I can't edit them out. So the best way to do this is I'm going to introduce you to Carol and Doug as individuals, how their lives went, what their childhoods were like. We're going to talk about Doug first. His life is a little bit easier to talk about, and then we're going to talk about Carol, and we're going to talk about how they met and then their relationship, and then I'm going to introduce some of the behavioral theories that explain how their deviance or their deviant behavior was shared or transmitted. And then, of course, that would lead to the behavior, meaning the murders and the other types of crimes or, well, it didn't start out with murder. It started out with bizarre behavior, aberrant behavior, and other kind of shady goings-on before they got to murder. And I'll share with you my theories on how that progressed. So I'm going to do things a little bit different. Usually I save the psychology part for the end, but because I want to, um, I think it'd be easier to introduce my theories at certain parts in the narrative. I might stop and talk about some psychological or sociological theories. And one more thing before we start. Um, sorry. 
There is such a thing I've learned when researching as information overload. I tend to be obsessive when I research and collect way too much information. And then I find that I have to filter it into what is important and what's not. And with this case in particular, there's so much information available. And I had a hard time deciding what Italians and what not. So what I decided is to act as though I'm really teaching a class on criminal justice, criminology, psychology, whatever, and focus on the relationship between Doug and Carol and how they came to kill. I think that is the important thing here. So I'll give you the details about their backgrounds and, you know, what's important. Not that because, I mean, that stuff obviously is important, but I'm going to focus the most heavily on the why of these two. Okay. So with that being said, Douglas Daniel Clark was born on March 10th, 1948, somewhere in Pennsylvania. I don't know where in Pennsylvania, and I was really curious being from Pennsylvania. Obviously, I just wondered if he was born anywhere near me. His parents are Blanche and Franklin. They had five kids, Frank Jr., Carol Ann, Walter, John, and of course, Doug. They called him by his middle name, Danny, until he was like seven or eight. And all of a sudden he was just like, I want to be called Doug. And they're like, okay. One psychologist would later say that the kids, and there were five of them, remember, competed fiercely for the parents' attention. And his brother Walter said that Doug had always been a pathological liar. This is important because keep in mind while I'm going through Doug's description, what a, the traits of a psychopath, okay? And that's obviously a big one. Their dad was in the Navy, so they moved often. They lived in many different countries. Seattle, I know that's not a country, but Seattle, Washington, Berkeley, California, Japan, the Marshall Islands, India. Eventually, the dad retired from the Navy, and he worked for the Transport, Transport Company of Texas. His mother was a radio controller. They lived in Texas for two years, then Berkeley. Then I found this important. They lived in India. They had like a, um, I know India is kind of a poor country, if, if I'm not wrong, but they lived in a fancy place. It was like a compound with a pool. They had servants. They were considered like elite. And I thought this might be important because you'll see that Doug had a sense of entitlement. And I thought possibly it was because when he was a kid, his father was like a big shot in the military. And whenever they lived, especially out of the country, their family would be treated like um, privileged or special. And I don't think most, well, certainly wasn't me, but that's not common among most kids. And I'm, I was just wondering if where that attitude of privilege might have originated. No matter where they lived, they always went to church on Sundays. Their earliest, um, I don't know whether I'm going to call it a kinkiness sign or whatever, but Remember, okay, this would have been the 50s, so I wasn't around then, but kind of early for things like this. When he was nine, Doug's mom caught him wearing her and the sister's underwear, and she didn't say anything about it at all. There was, there was no issue or, you know, why are you wearing my underwear or, you know, 
if if I had a kid who was nine, well, first of all, I wouldn't be thrilled about him going through my underwear drawer. That'd be a little bit disturbing, but more I would be curious as to, uh, well, just not to, not to be judgmental, but why? You know, just just um, out of curiosity. Doug and his brother Walter went to the International School in Geneva, Switzerland. It was called the Ecolot, and this was a fancy school for kids of diplomats, celebrities, royalty, rich kids. He was described as sullen and arrogant, and he liked to get in fights. And these are some quotes from Doug. These are actually like from his mouth that he said. He once told a group of kids, quote, we're quite rich, you know. And then he was in the cafeteria and I guess he found some meal to his distaste. I can sympathize there, but he was said to make the quote, my dad's a millionaire. I shouldn't have to eat this crappy food. So Again and again, you'll see him bringing up, well, as a kid anyway, my family has money, my dad's rich, um, I shouldn't have to do this or that. Again, the, the sense of entitlement this dude has is like off the charts. Other kids described him as lazy with a malicious streak. He continually turned people off with his exaggerated stories about how rich his dad was and his sexual exploits. Now, remember, he's a teenager. He's, I mean, like a young teenager. Too young to be, in my opinion, way too young to be having sexual exploits. He was always late, didn't do his homework. His teachers described him as unpleasant. He once got in trouble for writing a dirty letter to a female teacher. He liked to damage other people's stuff for fun, like books or whatever, and then would blame other people. He would claim that it was at this time that he discovered kinkiness and said that he liked older women. And keep, keep in mind again, early teens. He would go out and fraternize with the girls in the town, like the, you know, in, in Switzerland. And he told a story of waking up on the floor of somebody's apartment after a party and a girl literally just comes over and sits on his face, to put it bluntly. Uh, to me, that sounds more like a teenage fantasy, but eventually his behavior got to be out of hand, so they told his mother to come and discuss the behavior. He ended up being expelled. So then his parents put him in something called Culver Academy. This was a military school in Indiana. His dad has, had always wanted to go there. You know, he was in the, in the military. And this was a very strict military school. They wore uniforms. They marched. There were lots of rules. Doug was 16. He was in 10th grade, making him older and bigger than the other 10th graders. Again, he was described as smart but lazy. And he did, like, the minimum he had to do to skate by academically, just like me. But I never ended up killing anybody, fortunately. He was quite into sports, wrestling, football, rifle. He joined the firearms club. He played the saxophone. He didn't have any close friends. I don't think people could really stand him that much to want to be close to him. But he was said to hang around with a group who, quote, 
tolerated him. And this particular group of guys went by the name, I don't know if they gave themselves this name because I hope not, it's a really stupid name. They were called the Bad Attitudes. He would tell stories about sex, sexual exploits. And again, don't know if these are fantasies or, or not. The other kids said that lying was his second nature. Soon he was in trouble at this school due to uh, just not knowing how to act with peers. He just was a dickhead. He just couldn't get along with people. And bad school performance. So his parents got a few bad conduct letters. You know, your son is bad. Strangely, they didn't seem concerned or they didn't do anything. They also never came to visit him like other kids' parents did. It, it was just like they kind of, I don't know if I want to use the word abandoned, but didn't want to have much to do with him. He would sneak girls into his dorm room and one thing he was famous for is this would be, what, the 60s now? He, and no, I've never seen one of these, but a tape recorder in those days was this big old thing it was like real to real, like uh, like a, as big as a suitcase, just to put it into perspective for you. He would hide this thing under the bed, turn it on, and he would bring a girl in. He would record the sounds of them having sex and then play it for the other students. One of his schoolmates said, and this is pretty perceptive of him, he said it, it almost sounded like it was scripted, like Doug told the girl to say certain things. I guess the whatever was said was just phony or, or just didn't sound natural. And then he took us one step further. He would take pictures of him having sex with girls. And I'm thinking this had to have been a Polaroid because, I mean, just think about it. Where would he have got this film developed? And these, these are the days when you had to take film somewhere to get developed. I guess he was polite enough to cut her head off in the picture. And then, of course, he would show them around to everybody. He graduated at 19. He was a politically conservative Nixon fan. He got drafted because this was at the time of the Vietnam War. So he chose the Air Force. He was stationed in Texas, then Alaska. His title was Intercept Analyst Specialist, and what he did was decoded Russian messages. There were lots of sex workers in Anchorage, which he made frequent visits to. And he did get an honorable discharge, but he left the military early, and there's some Mm, I guess, a conspiracy surrounding the, the exact reason of why. Supposedly, somebody said he was a security risk for whatever whatever reason. I don't know if it was his big mouth or what, but he was put on snow shoveling duty while waiting for court-martial. And I guess one night he just didn't feel like shoveling snow, which I can't blame him. So he went down to Anchorage downtown and found a taxi driver. And he said, hey, can I uh, drive your cab for the night? And taxi driver agreed. So um, according to Doug, he was driving this taxi around and he heard gunshots. Apparently there had been a murder. So he did the right thing, of course, like any citizen would, turned off the headlights and sped off. Unfortunately for him, there was a witness nearby who wrote down the cab number. So to make a long story short, they 
traced the cab number, found the driver, driver told the story, you know, it was this Air, Air Force guy, blah, 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 comes home to his dorm to find a note telling him to report to Anchorage Homicide. So he's like, oh shit, gets in a car and just drove. Remember, this is Alaska. He ended up in California. His sister was living in Van Nuys, and uh, Van Nuys is going to be where most of our story will take place. Van Nuys is one of many Los Angeles neighborhoods, and it's in the San Fernando Valley, just to give you a little bit of background on it. So he met and married a woman named Beverly. He was 24, she was 27. This would be her second marriage. Beverly was Doug's type. She felt that she was fat and unattractive, and he would build her up. You know, you're beautiful, you're, you know, hot, you're whatever. Whatever you word you used in the 70s, you're groovy. I don't know. They bought an upholstery business. He did the upholstery work. She did the book work. But he had a bad habit of blowing money. And he would tell her he's the smart one. She said he was lazy around the house, didn't want to do any housework, stubborn and self-centered. Here's another underwear story. One day they decided that because they were so much in love, this would be a really cool romantic thing to do. And they said, let's wear each other's underwear to work. Now, I've never been married. I've had boyfriends. I've been in love. And if any of them ever said to me, um, let's do something romantic. Let's wear each other's underwear for a day. I'd be like, fuck off. I do not want to wear dude's underwear. Then he said that he wanted to try swinging, which I think was in the 70s kind of a thing, and threesomes. So he would literally march sex workers right through their apartment, you know, right in front of his wife. And she actually thought that all guys have this fantasy about, I think it's true to some extent that a lot of them fantasize about watching two women have sex or having two sex, sex with two women. But he always took things past the realm of just fantasies in his head. He went to bar, bars a lot, drank a lot, and Bev said that she wanted him to go to AA, which he did, and he was sober for about two years. He later claimed that he, quote, ran hookers through the upholstery business. Not exactly sure what he meant by that. I don't know if he meant that he invited them there or if it was some kind of a, like a racket. I, I'm not real sure. But there was a recession during this time. It's the 70s. The business was having financial trouble, so they had to sell it. He worked as, at a gas station and as a security guard. And I have that underlined because I think I've mentioned how many killers we've seen that are security guards or police or, you know, like law enforcement wannabes. Finally, he got a job at the Department of Water and Power for Los Angeles as a steam plant trainee. Now, this was a really good, solid, good paying job. He worked at the Department of Water and Power Valley Generating Station. He divorced Beverly in 1976. They'd been married four years. It was an amicable divorce. They were still friendly. Later on, Beverly would say that she had a hard time believing that he would kill anybody. But uh, we're going to learn that he has a, as with school, with his jobs, he has a history of not knowing how to get along with people. 
At least four of his co-workers said that he verbally abused them or threatened to assault them. He was absent a lot, the number 15% of the time was given, and he would make up ridiculous excuses for not being able to come to work. He complained about the job safety. In 1978, he quit. Then he tried to get his job back, but he ended up being fired for insubordination. And this is interesting. I mean, it's like an interesting side note, but nothing really ever came of it. The plant superintendent said that due to the risk involved, um, usually when somebody was discharged, they would give them their papers in hand. But in his case, they sent them by registered mail. And I think that what that means is they were afraid of how he would act, like maybe blow up and uh, do something violent. So... On the day that he received his papers in the mail, the LAPD told Valley Steam that he was possibly headed their way with a shotgun. But nobody knows how the police knew this or, or where this information came from. Nothing ended up happening. So that's a mystery, but it, it, it is interesting. So in 1979, he got a job at the Jurgen Soap Plant as a stationary engineer. And this is very similar to what he'd done. Jurgens make, I don't know if they still make soap, but they used to make bars of soap. I remember it, it was white. And um, they had big, like, vats, like boilers, I guess you would call it. And it takes somebody with expertise to run this type of equipment, and that's what he did. In February of 1980, he had a car, a Pacer, those are old, old shitty cars, and it blew up in the parking lot of his job. He did admit to setting the car on fire for the insurance money, and as a former firefighter, I can attest to the fact that the great majority of car fires are set by the owner in order to collect the insurance money. I remember my one of my very first fires that I ever went to was a car fire. And it's his car on fire in the middle of the woods. And we're all like, hmm, yeah, this car just happens to be sitting here in the middle of the woods and just uh, catches on fire for no reason. And there's nobody around. You know, yeah, that's not suspicious. So he became, I guess what you call a professional bum. Do you know what couch surfing is? Some, it's kind of a modern word, but it means you go like from friends or and relatives, different apartments, and you sleep on their couch. Well, that's that's what he was. He would find women to hook up with, and he would stay with them for a while and sponge off of them. And Louise Farr, who wrote the book that, that was like the main source that I used, which if you're interested in this case, I very much recommend this book. It's uh, very good, very well written, very entertaining, very informative, highly recommended. Anyway, she's quoted as saying he was very good at murmuring in women's ears in country bars and getting them to sleep with him and give him a place to stay. He was essentially a leech, end quote. He was charming and manipulative, again, to traits of a psychopath. So, in 1979, right after Christmas, he finds himself at a bar in North Hollywood called Little Nashville. Yeah, it's a country bar. And he meets a, um, what's a polite word to use? Dowdy and unattractive woman named Carol Bundy. She's 37 and he's 31. Remember, he likes older women. So now let's talk about Carol. Carol Mary Peters was born on August 26th of 1942, which is crazy because 
I'm sure nobody cares, but that is the same exact day that my aunt was born. Her parents were Gladys and Charles, and they were both violent drunks. The family was poor. She had an older brother named Jean, who was seven years older. He never liked Carol, and she had a sister, Vicky, who was three years younger. Like Doug, the family moved often, often from state to state. Her dad worked as a movie theater troubleshooter, which I have no idea what that is. Her mom was a hairdresser and also a stand-in for tap dancer Ruby Keeler. And uh, since this was before my time, I uh, had, to, had to Google her. She was an actor, singer, and dancer and was mainly in Warner Brothers musicals in the 30s. And I don't like musicals, so that's why I would have no idea who that was. They briefly lived in Los Angeles when Carol was a kid, and her brother was in 14 movies. Carol has fond memories of her mother reading her bedtime stories. She thought she was beautiful, which I guess she was if she was in movies. When the family lived in Louisiana, Carol was about eight. And an incident occurred that makes me really sad to hear about this. As a kid, I, I can't imagine somebody doing this to me. All of a sudden, for some reason, her mother started to ignore her and be real shitty with her. And one day, Carol came home from school to find the doors locked. And she's like, let me in. And her mother said, go away, little girl. You don't live here anymore. You're not my little girl. Now, who said that to a kid? What the fuck? It's it's like mind-blowing how you could do that to your child. And it's no wonder that she turned out disturbed. So Carol cried, of course. She ran two miles to her dad's work, and he drove her home with him. Then he fought with the mother, but her mother was never the same with her. She would, would always treat her like shit. Her mother would beat all three kids fiercely with a belt. In fact, she would go so nuts that the dad would have to, like, jump in and, and tell her, like, knock it off. One time when Carol was being beat in the face with a belt by her mother, she sat there calmly reading a, a comic book. And this is a major example of denial. That's just dissociating yourself to what's going on, just like shutting yourself off to what's going on around you. And th this is a very extreme example of it. But we'll see that often kids who are traumatized do this. They learn how to dissociate. And Carol becomes very good at it. And we're going to see that in the future. When she was nine, Carol started to wear glasses, which isn't really that unusual. They were real thick, like Coke bottle glasses. So the kids started calling her Four Eyes, which, come on, like, can you possibly come up with a more unoriginal name? She was very into reading. She, <laughs> she actually read the dictionary and science fiction. She was 11 years old when she came home from school and her mother was laying in bed. She was sick and she said, call your dad at work. I'm sick. So her dad comes home, takes her to the hospital, comes back alone a couple hours later. And he told the two girls, because by now the brother was old enough to be out on his own as just the two girls. And he told them, quote, your mother's dead. Just like that. Your mother's dead. So they all cried together. And when that was over, 
he said, okay, girls, now you're going to have to take her place. And I think they, at first, they thought that he meant like chores or around the house. But he had something a little more sinister in mind, if you get my drift. So that very night, their mother had just died. And he says, Williams has to sleep with me. So they played... It wasn't really rock, paper, scissors, but it was something similar, some type of game that they would play, and it's like the loser would have to sleep with the dad. Vicky lost that particular night, so she would have to sleep with the dad. She, Vicky later confirmed this, so it's not like Carol is making this shit up. Their dad remarried um, maybe a year later, and he took to Car- calling Carol ugly, fat, and stupid and he abused her. She was in a series of foster homes for a while. When she was 15, Carol always had, she was, I hate to compare myself with her, but um, besides liking to read, she also had a talent for writing. When she was 15, she wrote an article for the school newspaper called Being an American Citizen, in which she said she wanted to be the first female president. She dropped out of school in ninth grade, because there was a rumor going around that she was pregnant, which was not true. She later counted that she had been in a total of 23 different schools in her life, which is crazy. And unfortunately, this is also very common in girls who are abused sexually. She became promiscuous, and she would often run naked down the street, and she would have sex with pretty much anybody, including bus drivers, school bus drivers. One day she came home from the store to find the house empty and their cat dead, shot dead on the floor. And she's like, what is this all about here? And her stepmother said that the dad had threatened to kill the whole family, starting obviously with the cat, but she had got the gun off of him. She refused to press charges. Yeah, but he was arrested for disturbing the peace, which... I'm pretty sure it would be a summary offense. And um, yeah, would be family and I later drop down to disturbing the peace. Carol ran away at age 17, which you can't blame her, get away from the family. And she would marry the first of three husbands. The first one was named Leonard. He was 56. Remember, she was 17. He beat her and he wanted to pimp her out. So she left, fortunately. Still at age 17, she gets married for the second time. She married a guy named Richard or Dick Geis, who was 32. And Dick seems to be the only good person that Carol ever encountered or had any kind of relationship with. He was a writer. He wrote erotica and science fiction. And he encouraged her to write because he discovered that she had a talent for it. He found her to be intellectual and witty, but, quote, pathetically eager to please, end quote. She tried writing a book, but she only wrote 12 pages. She wrote a short story in his science fiction fanzine, and then she put out one issue of her own science fiction fanzine, which is really cool, but this was like the 60s, so, I mean, obviously I knew how you would do that today. You would use a computer, printer, and stuff. I have no idea how how you would go about putting out a magazine in in those days, but it's really cool that uh, they did that. She tried to be a cartoonist. She had some talent, but she gave up. 
she had, to nobody's surprise, zero self-esteem, zero self-worth. In 1962, her dad hung himself, and her husband Dick thought that she felt guilty about it. She cheated on Dick. She went back and forth with men and women, and regardless of who she was with, she was servile and obedient with them. Like, she wanted to be the subservient person in the relationship. They moved to Oregon, and at some time, Dick discovered that Carol was prostituting herself. <laughs> One of her, I guess you call it a customer, not sure, was in his 70s, and he would pay her in books. Dick had the thought that she had to dirty herself due to her childhood, which is a very good point. Since she was sexually abused from like 14, her self-esteem is like non-existent. They moved to Santa Monica, and at one point, Carol asked Dick if he would pay for her to go to nursing school. He said, okay, if you get good grades. She went to Santa Monica College, where she first she got her GED. She was actually a, the valedictorian of her class. She took the state boards in 1968, and she became a licensed vocational nurse. That's a, um, it's a nurse, but it's like, it's not as educated as a registered nurse. She did leave Dick, but they were supposedly on friendly terms. Her third husband was named Grant Bundy, and he was also a nurse. That's how she met him. They had two sons, Chris, and the other one was called, nicknamed Spike. Like just about everybody else in her life, Grant beat her too. She eventually left him. She moved to a women's shelter. In 1979, when she was 36, she moved into an apartment complex in Van Nuys called Valeria Gardens. Her kids were five and nine at the time. And a lot of very important things are going to happen at Valeria Gardens. The manager of the apartment building was a guy named Jack Murray. And I have to talk about him for a little bit because he will become a very important person in this story. Jack Murray was born in Glasgow, Scotland. Then he moved to Australia as a baby and he grew up in, in Australia. He was known as Scotland's Man of Song. He was a singer. He moved to Los Angeles determined to be a country singer, a star. Like so many people move to Los Angeles thinking to be that they're going to be a star. When he auditioned, he claimed to be the Tom Jones of Australia. Tom Jones, I'd heard of him, but I had to look up more details so I could tell you who he was. He's Welsh. He His career started in the 60s. He's actually called Sir Tom Jones now. I don't really know how to describe his music. I guess kind of easy listening or I don't know. But it's funny. And I found a picture of him online. This is on my social media. And I matched it up with a picture of Jack. And I'll be damned if they do look very similar. So Jack was very much like Doug. And we're going to see that is. He was a pathological liar. He made shit up all the time. He was charismatic and manipulative. He screwed anybody who walked. He told a lot of stories. He actually claimed, this is hilarious, that he wrote Waltzing Matilda. If you don't know, if you don't know what Waltzing Matilda, I, when I read that, I like laughed out loud. Waltzing Matilda is an Australian folk song it's called The Country's Unofficial National Anthem, and it was written in 1895. And he called women birds, and that's a slang term that I know the Brits call 
women birds. I, I didn't realize that the Australians did too, but he talked about birds and somebody once made the comment about him, quote, he's nothing but a con man and a leech, end quote. And that pretty much sums him up. And it also sums up Doug. So it's no coincidence that Carol would fall madly in love with both of these creepy leeches. He met his wife, Jeanette, at a telethon, and he saw her there. It was a telethon, so she was answering phones. And the first thing he noticed about her and commented on was her legs. He said to somebody, quote, look at the legs, end quote. He said, introduce me to her. Now, if some dude wanted to be introduced to me on the basis of simply my legs, I would tell him to fuck right off. But that's just me. They were introduced and they got married 10 days later in Las Vegas. They had two kids and Jack found a job as the manager of Valeria Gardens north of Sherman Way. And... Sherman Way is an extremely long street because I, I wanted to see if I could find where, where it was, but no, it's too long. Besides being the manager and like maintenance person of this apartment complex, he also sang at a place called Little Nashville, which was a country bar. He billed himself as the Australian cowboy. And again, I, I wanted to look this place up, see if it's still there. It's now called the Drunken Crab, which I assume is a seafood restaurant. So Carol moves into this apartment and she meets Jack. And I guess he said something to the effect that he's married or whatever. And she said something like, oh, I'm sorry that you're married. And he said, quote, that's okay. I fool around, end quote. So he felt bad for her because... Carol, I told you about her thick glasses, she had diabetes, and that messes with your eyes. She had extremely bad eyesight. In fact, she couldn't even work because she was nearly blind. And she actually walked with one of those white canes, you know, that blind people use. So he felt bad for her. He took her to doctors, and he took her to get Social Security. Fortunately for Carol, she found a doctor who said that she had cataracts, and if she just had them removed, and then she would be able to see. So she had the cataract surgery, and she still always had the thick glasses, but she could see. She didn't need the cane. Her dad, I told you about the dad killing himself, so they sold his house, and she had some money from this. She spent a lot of money on Jack, and she was the type of person who tried to buy love. If she liked somebody, she would buy them shit. Or just out and out give them money. She had some tricks that she would do in the apartment. She would take um, her kids' little G.I. Joe toys or little soldiers, I don't know, whatever they were. Stick them down the toilet. And then call Jack, because remember, he's the maintenance man too. And... You should be like, oh, the toilet's clogged up. And soon she found out what his favorite beer was. So whenever she would pull a you know, kind of fix such and such trick, she made sure that his 
favorite beer just happened to be in the refrigerator. So it only took three of these incidents before they had sex. Somehow they decided that it was a good idea to open a joint safety deposit box. I don't know on what planet that's a good idea, but to nobody's surprise, Jack stole money from it. He told her that his wife had cancer, which was not true. He said he couldn't leave her because he had medical bills. So Carol lent him $10,000. To make him jealous, she had a fling with Jeanette, that's his wife, 23-year-old brother Warren. Then she told everybody, and by everybody, I mean the apartment complex. They had like a, I guess, a rumor mill or a grapevine there. So she let everybody know that Warren was better at sex than Jack. And this is extremely childish. Carol had this, as we'll see, a practice of purposely doing stuff to try to make men jealous. And she would like pit one against the other. Jack actually warned Warren. Okay, we're talking Jack Murray, like the Mr. I wrote Waltzing Matilda, and I look like Tom Jones, blah, 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 and I screw everybody. He actually warned Warren about Carol, and he said, quote, stay away from Carol. She's no good for you, end quote. I guess if people would say to him, why are you screwing her? She's fat and dumpy and ugly and everything. He would say, yeah, but she gives great head. Ugh, I'm a pig. About one of the funniest things is one day she went to Jeanette when Jack wasn't home, and she handed her $1,500. This was like 1980, 1979, so that was a lot of money in those days. She goes, I'll give you $1,500 if you leave Jack. Now, who does that? Really? This is how pathetic and desperate and needy Carol is. So... Jeanette, instead of laughing at her and throwing her out, she said, well, let me talk, let me ask Jack, see what he says. So he came home from work or wherever he was, and he's like, get the fuck out of here. And she told him, kick her out, please. So he did. Carol and her kids then moved into an apartment on Lamona Avenue. This was only three miles from Jack and Jeanette. Now, even though she had been given the boot from Jack's apartment complex, Carol was still obsessed with him. And when Carol was obsessed with somebody, she was obsessed. She still thought about him all the time. She sent him letters. As a matter of fact, I have a letter that's in uh, Louise Ford's book that I have to read to you because in order to really see how she thinks... You have to hear this for yourself. This letter is dated January 26th, 1980, which is about a month after she'd already met Doug. But still, it, it fits in the, uh, the flow of the narrative. So I'm going to read it to you here. Remember, this is to Jack from Carol. And it goes, My darling, can tender thoughts be conveyed on typewriter paper and written with a Smith Corona? Well, I'm going to try. I don't really have anything to say. No tears to cry, pains to bear, hurts to protect. Just a simple statement. I love you. I've said it before. Usually when I'm demanding attention or crying over real or imagined hurts. Now a question. What can I do to please you? 
What can I do to make you happy? At this moment, I feel very warm and giving. I want to share with you some of the glow I feel when I'm either with you or thinking of you. I'm feeling very good about things these days. I only regret that I had to leave Valerio, yet it was necessary. Someday will you let me come back? When I look back at everything, it seems that even if you weren't really aware of it, that you do love me in many ways. You've given back to me as much as I've tried to give to you. You don't express tenderness, but it's there. Jack, around the holidays, you told me to put my emotions on hold. Can I take them off now and relax? Of course, I now realize why I don't like this apartment. It is across town from you. I wonder why my life is so filled with thoughts of you and why I take so much pleasure from knowing you. I won't turn this letter into an erotic statement, but I hope you do understand that I treasure those special moments that we've had. I know who my master, in quotation marks, is, and I'll follow your lead. Why I want you to control me, I don't know, but it feels good when you take command and you've never abused your authority with me. I don't know if it's just a game, but it is, is a good feeling. I trust your judgment and you seem to respect mine. I wish there were more ways to show you how much I care. Will you give me a pet name? Affectionately, Carol. Oh, God. It's disgusting, but it's also so telling. The most important thing about it that jumps out to me is when she refers to him as her master. She says, I'll follow you lead. Your lead, I want you to control me. It feels good when you take command. It's a good feeling. And these are her exact words I, I'm reading right from the letter. So you don't have to be Freud to figure out that. This is somebody who wants to be controlled. Not only in sex, as in like a submissive partner, but in every aspect of life. Now I'm just going to kind of paraphrase and summarize. She kind of comes out and says that... He's not really affectionate or loving, or apparently he didn't tell her he loved her, or he didn't seem loving. But she says, I know you love me anyway. So she's delusional. She's seeing things that aren't there. Like, she wants him to love her so bad that she's imagining something that's not there. And this letter is extremely important. That's why I'm taking the time to read it to you. Carol was extremely needy and dependent. And she wants somebody to love her and pay attention to her so bad that she will literally do anything to win somebody's attention, as we will see. So I mentioned earlier that Jack was a singer at a place called Little Nashville. It's a country bar. And he was like their headliner. I guess it's like a star. So Carol would, I guess you would call it, stalk him. She would go to this place all the time and sit there and stare at him as he sang. So one night, a couple days after Christmas 1979, she goes to obsess over Jack and stare at him as he sings, and she meets Doug. And they're the perfect pair because Carol is lonely, 
looking for love, will literally do anything for a dude or maybe a woman. Doug is charming, manipulative, looking for a woman he can sponge off of, preferably with money. So, as fate would have it, he walks over to Carol and asked her if she'd like to dance. And she says yes. And she said later she had never met anybody as charming as Doug. He asked her for her phone number, which she gladly gives to him. So a few days later, he calls her and asks to come over. And of course, she agrees. So he comes over, and he seems to get along really well with the two kids. They actually climb up on his lap to cuddle with him. And he tells them, by the way, I'm spending the night with your mother. If I was her, I would have been like, excuse me, since this is the first time that they had met outside of the uh, the bar, you know, like their first date. So they sleep together. Of course, they have sex. And keep in mind, again, first night they'd been together. And Doug says, um, I'm having trouble with my landlady. Could I move a few things in with you? she says yes. So the next morning they get up and he's getting ready to leave and Doug asks for another favor and we already have a feeling that no matter what it is that she's gonna say yes. So he asks could I have a pair of your underwear? So of course Carol ever ready to please brings out a pair of big white cotton underwear and uh he kind of looked at him. He's like, I, I think they're too big. He wanted to wear them to work is what he wanted to do. One final item before we end class for today. This might seem like a small item, but it's going to become very important. By this time, Carol's living in the, her new apartment. And she's standing outside talking to the new neighbors. And she told a dirty joke. I'd be curious to know what the dirty joke was. I like dirty jokes. Imagine that. And from behind her, she hears a kid giggle. And she turns around, and there's a little blonde girl there. So what the little girl does is she comes back with her own dirty joke. So Carol tells the little girl, I like you. So instantly she made a friend. The little girl is called Teresa. I don't know if that's her real name or not. It doesn't really matter. I mean, we don't know her last name, so I'll just call her Teresa. And she was 11 years old. Keep that in mind. So we're going to break here. We've met Carol and Doug. Next time, we're going to go into detail about their relationship and how it progressed. I'm going to introduce you to some theories, some sociological theories that explain the behavior of dyads or group a dyad is a group of two or two people and how behavior and ideas are transmitted between them because you have to understand that in order to understand how they do what they do later on i'm expecting that this is going to be until i start into a case it's hard to tell how much how long it's going to be but i'm expecting at least one more part and I, I have to tell you, I, I hate to do this, but I'm having some, uh, I don't know if it's the word complications is the right word, from my surgery. It's making my TMJ kind of go haywire, and I've been in quite a bit of pain. So I'm just going to have this one episode out on Thursday. 
and then I'll get the other ones out as soon as I can. But I don't want you to have to go a week with, with nothing to listen to from me. So I will see you back here soon. Class dismissed. Thank you.